Good morning. Today we're going to kick off our special Holy Week with a familiar portion of Scripture. Uh, For most of us, I imagine, today is Palm Sunday, uh, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, The event event that is called the triumphal entry is actually recorded for us in each of the four Gospels. For our time together this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew's account. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and start making your way to Matthew chapter 21. Okay, Matthew 21. Now, as you make your way to Matthew 21, I just want to encourage you all to make plans to be with us throughout this week as we uh, commemorate and celebrate uh, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, as I already mentioned, we're going to be doing a special message uh, looking at Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. Wednesday night uh, at 6.30, we're going to have a special night of worship where we will be following the directive of Colossians 3.16, which exhorts us to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And so that's what we're going to be doing on Wednesday night. We're going to have curry dinner prior to that if you'd like to come out early at 5.30. On Friday night, we've got Good Friday service. It'll be about an hour long. It's a family-style service. We're also going to set aside time for communion on Friday night as we remember the cross. And then uh, Sunday, we have our Resurrection Sunday celebration out at U Beach. So don't come here next Sunday morning. We won't be here, okay? We're going to be at the beach. We're going to be doing an uh, outdoor service. It's going to be a sunrise service, 6.30 a.m. Everybody all at one time come together. We've got lots of... Uh, activities planned. So we're going to have our service at 630. uh, And then we're going to have some fellowship, some food uh, available for everybody. And we have some activities for the kids to engage in. And then we're also going to be doing baptisms on uh, Resurrection Sunday there at U Beach. And so um, that's going on. If you can't make it out Sunday morning and you're like, I just can't do that, We are going to be offering a Saturday night service uh, this week as a special alternative. Uh, It will be the same message that we're getting on Sunday morning, and it will be a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, and that will be on Saturday night. Uh, But you're not going to get all the food and the fellowship and the baptisms and all that kind of stuff that's going to be going on on Sunday morning. So my encouragement, you know, hey, once a year, yeah, not that we only celebrate Jesus once a year, but once a year we, we set aside a day where we commemorate and we celebrate we, the resurrected Lord. Um, you know, I think it's worth waking up early and, and making the trek out there. And so uh, I want to encourage you guys as much as possible. I, I told the staff, I said, you know, if we have, if we have people show up on Saturday, great, but I'm almost kind of hoping nobody shows up on Saturday night, to be completely honest, because everyone's just going to come out Sunday uh, morning. So uh, not to deter anybody, if you're like, yeah, we're going to be there Saturday because we can't make Sunday, that's fine. We're going to be here. We thought we wanted to offer something for those um, that couldn't make it on Sunday. So uh, that's going to be going Saturday night if you're interested in that. Okay, so we've got uh, a busy week ahead of us, lots of opportunities for the body to get together to celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death and the cross. And so uh, just a great, great week ahead. Now, uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention towards our text this morning. Hopefully you've made it to the book of Matthew by now. Our text this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And the title of our study together this morning is going to be who is this? 
Who is this? An extremely vital question we all must answer. And with that, I'm going to ask you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read through our portion together from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you to do your best to follow along. Okay? Matthew records the following details in his Gospel account, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's stop right there and ask God to speak to us today. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to kick off a very special week, Lord, as we just remember uh, all that you've done for us, Lord, and we celebrate the victory that you won on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would uh, begin to prepare our hearts, even this morning, for the word that you desire to speak to us. Lord, I pray that we would be attentive. Lord, that we would be expectant. Lord, that you're going to speak here this morning. And Lord, that you're going to be ministering to our hearts throughout this entire week as we focus upon you and remember all that you've done for us. Lord, may you be honored, may you be glorified, and may you be high and lifted up in our hearts and in our lives and in our study this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, we are jumping right into the culmination of Matthew's gospel record without any sort of context here. So I do want to just take a few minutes to kind of catch us up, explain uh, a few things. Jesus has been touring throughout the land of Galilee and Judea, ministering to all sorts of people individually and to the masses corporately. Uh, during his earthly ministry, Jesus came across all sorts of different people, okay? People uh, who loved him, people who followed him, people who hated him, uh, and, and people who challenged him, people who were touched by him and healed of various illnesses and infirmities. His earthly ministry for the last three years has sort of culminated here in Matthew chapter 21 with his face set to enter into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover celebration and what will end up in his crucifixion. 
just prior to this time, at the end of chapter 20, Jesus is recorded as making his way out of the city of Jericho, where he encountered two blind men begging him to have mercy on them. They cried out to Jesus saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And Jesus moved with compassion. He would touch their eyes and he would heal these two blind beggars. And we're told that they received their sight and they immediately followed after Jesus. And I do think that this is an interesting bit of background information for us to consider because in our text this morning, we're going to look to answer the question, who is this in relation to Jesus Christ? And I find it interesting that two blind men were able to properly identify Jesus as the son of David and the Lord of all, even without the physical capacity of sight. And yet, in our text this morning, we're going to find that there were some who have the full capacity of sight, and yet they have difficulty properly identifying who Jesus is. You know, oftentimes we think that seeing is believing, that if we could just see God with our own two eyes, if we could see him do a miracle or you know, part the clouds and speak to us, then we would believe that we would surrender all to him. But the Bible would actually lead us to a different conclusion. The scriptures teach us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what Romans ten seventeen tells us. And so seeing isn't what brings about faith, but it's hearing, specifically hearing God's word. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As we get into our text this morning and we open up God's word, my hope, my heart for us is that we would believe, that we would have faith in the word of God and that we all would be able to properly answer this all-important question of who is this? So let's jump into the opening three verses of our text again as we unpack what God has for us. Verse 1 says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. After their travels from the city of Jericho, we read here in our opening verse about how Jesus and his disciples, they continued on their journey towards Jerusalem. Verse 1 of our text tells us that they drew near to Jerusalem, uh, and they came across the village of Bethphage. Now, not much is known about the uh, village of Bethphage, other than it was situated upon the Mount of Olives and that it was in close proximity to another village named Bethany that was also situated on the side of the Mount of Olives. The other synoptic gospels, uh, Mark and Luke, they actually include Bethany alongside Bethphage in their description of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. We do know that Bethany was a place that Jesus frequented during his journeys to Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany was the name of the uh, village and the home of his good friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, and so whenever he would go into Jerusalem, often he would spend time there at their house. From the village of Bethphage, Jesus sent out two unnamed disciples upon a very specific mission. 
Jesus was sending these two disciples to go pick up a donkey and her colt in a village opposite of them. Now, a colt can refer to an, a uh, young, untrained horse or a donkey. Obviously, in our account, it is referring to a young, untrained donkey. And look at the details that Jesus gives to them. He tells his disciples how they will immediately find this donkey with her colt, that they will be tied up, that they were to loose them and bring them to Jesus. And if anybody should say anything, just to tell them that the Lord has need of them and that the owner will immediately send them. Now, whether or not Jesus had previously made arrangements with someone is not clear. It would seem, perhaps, based upon the details involved, that he may have done so or that he, at the very least, knew that the owner was a servant of the Lord and would not object to the Lord using his donkey and colt. Whether or not Jesus had made prearranged plans or simply had the foreknowledge of the owner's willingness to allow this to happen doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus had worked out all the behind-the-scenes details of his entry into Jerusalem. Unbeknownst to the disciples and many others, Jesus had already worked out all the details. He knew things would be ready he knew things would be in place. He had it all under control. I want to encourage you and remind you of a truth that's very important for us to note. Jesus is the same today as well. Okay? He's at work behind the scenes of your life and mine, and he is in control of life's situations. While coronavirus and its impact upon us was something none of us could have seen coming, none of it was a surprise to Jesus. He has orchestrated plans, and he has purposes for you and for me to walk in even in the midst of a global pandemic. And we know and are confident that his plans, they are good plans. They are designed for his glory and for our benefit. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 echoes this same mentality where Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's plans for us are for our good, and they've been prepared beforehand by the Lord that we might walk in them. This leads me to a question I must ask for you to consider this morning. What is God's plan for you? What good works does He have prepared for you right now? And I, and I believe the follow-up question is just as important. Are you walking in them? Are you allowing the Lord to lead and to guide you in His plan? Because He has worked out the details. He has provided all that is needed. Are you submitted to Him and His plan for your life? I hope that we can confidently answer that question today, that we know what God's plan is for us and that we are being obedient to walk in it one step at a time. Jesus had everything under control. All the details were worked out. Everything was in place so that his disciples could successfully bring to him a donkey and its colt. Now, what was so important about this donkey 
and it's cold. Well, verse four and five, they tell us. Let's read. Matthew writes, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. All this was done so that it might fulfill prophecy. Specifically, a prophecy spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet during the days of Ezra and was a leader of the restoration of the nation of Israel following their captivity in Babylon. He prophesied during the years of King Darius of Persia over 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah, in speaking to the Jews about how God would protect them and reestablish them in the land. He spoke this prophecy, which is recorded for us in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is doing something way different than what he's ever done in the last 30 years of his life. A major change is taking place here as Jesus plans to enter into Jerusalem. For years, the line has been, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. Okay, at the wedding in Cana, Mary, Jesus' mother, he wanted Jesus to do something about the wine that had run out. And Jesus said, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. After Jesus fed the 5,000, John's gospel tells us that Jesus perceived that the multitudes were about to come and take him by force to make him their king. And he had to escape to the mountain because his time had not yet come. His brothers mockingly told Jesus to go up to Jerusalem during one of the feasts and to present himself to the people, but he dismissed them, telling them, My time has not yet come. When confronting some of the religious leaders and exclaiming that they did not know the Father, but that he did know the Father, that he was sent by the Father, they sought to take him, but no one was able to lay a hand upon him because, John chapter 7, verse 30 says, His hour had not yet come come. For years, his hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come, but all of that is changing right now. His hour has come. His time is now. All the waiting has passed, and now it is time. The time has come for Jesus to rightly identify himself as the long-awaited king that was prophesied by Zechariah some 500 years prior to this. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David that will establish a kingdom that will never end. And Paul, actually, he pleads with us in 2 Corinthians that we not receive the grace of God in vain, For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to come to a proper understanding of who Jesus is and to accept him as Lord and Savior of your life. The scriptures, they speak with a sense of urgency regarding salvation. And the timing of it all, because we never know when the last time to get this right will come. We need to act now. 
Everything he does as he enters into Jerusalem and all that takes place was done so that Jesus would be properly identified as the Christ, as the King of the Jews. And I want you to recall as well the writer of this gospel. The writer Matthew, he was a Jew writing to predominantly a Jewish audience. In his gospel record, time and time again, he quotes from the Old Testament, showing how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. The overarching theme, really, of the book of Matthew is to present Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. And so, the triumphal entry, it marks this culmination of sorts in Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the Christ, as the King of the of the Jews. And so as we continue through this portion, we're going to note things that speak of Jesus as king. But before we do that, let's take a quick look at verse 6 and note one more important observation. Verse 6 says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Verse 6 is a small verse, one that we could probably easily look over, pay little attention to, but I think if we did that, we would miss out on something that I think is worth pointing out. The disciples were told by Jesus to go and do something, something that was a bit odd, okay, but at the same time, very simple. Jesus told them to go get a donkey, and it's full, that would be tied up. All they had to do was find them, which Jesus said would happen immediately, and then loose them and bring them back to him. If anyone said anything, all they had to say was, the Lord has need of them, and again, immediately they would be sent. Jesus didn't ask these guys to do something extremely difficult. They didn't have to go wrangle these beasts like some kind of rodeo cowboy, okay? They were already tied up, waiting for them. They didn't have to go all throughout the village, searching high and low for these animals. He promised that they would immediately be found. They didn't have to try and figure out a way to explain themselves in the case of someone confronting them either. They were given this get-out-of-trouble proclamation should anyone ask what they were doing. And sometimes I think we have it in our mind that God only asks us to do things that are really difficult to do. That, that God can only use people if we're willing to do extremely difficult things, if we're willing to do monumental tasks that take great steps of faith in order to be accomplished. But listen, that simply is not true. These guys were asked to do something for the Lord that was pretty simple. Go get a donkey, and it's full, that are tied up waiting for you just inside the next village. Walk them back to me. You know, I believe God wants to use each and every one of us to accomplish his work. Sometimes his work will require us to take great steps of faith. But oftentimes, I think God's work can be accomplished in simple obedience through a willingness to walk in the good works that he has already prepared for us. God had gone before these guys. He prepared the way, and all they had to do was be willing to walk over to the next village, find a couple animals, walk them back. You know, I believe that God is doing a, a neat work here in Iwakuni. And I am excited to see what God has in store for the future. I believe he has a great many good works that he wants to do here. And, and I do believe that he's looking for people that are willing to walk in the works 
that he has prepared. God is at work here, and I would ask you to pray and to see if the Lord is asking you to come alongside the work that he's doing here and to be used by him. I do believe God's looking for people that are willing to walk in simple obedience in accordance with the works that he has prepared. These disciples, they were obedient. And they did as Jesus commanded them. And I hope that as we hear from the Lord and he speaks to us, that we too would be obedient to listen to the Lord and to respond in faith. Well, let's continue on and note the details that speak of Jesus and his identity as the king in these next verses. Look at verses 7 through 9. Matthew writes, They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! We'll stop right there. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus is doing more to identify himself as the king. The things that took place as he came down that mountain, they were all pictures to help identify him as the king of the Jews, as their long-awaited Messiah. We already highlighted how Jesus' riding on a donkey was a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of the coming king. What else identified him as a king as he came down the mountain? Well, one, the fact that people were removing their clothing and laying them before them was a picture of a king. Back in 2 Kings chapter 9, Elisha the prophet sent a messenger to Jehu informing him that the Lord had chosen him to be king over Israel. That the Lord was going to use him to avenge the blood of his servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord that had been shed by the hand of the wicked queen of Jezebel. The messenger came anointed Jehu with oil. He immediately fled from his presence. And as Jehu walked out from the house that he was in, the men that were with him inquired as to what went on. What was that all about? Hesitantly, Jehu explained what the messenger had said to him, that he was going to be king. And at that, we're told that each man hastened to take his garment and put it under Jehu on the top of the steps, which Jehu was upon, and they blew trumpets proclaiming, Jehu is king. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. And so, as people did likewise here, removing their outer garments, laying them before Jesus, that should have been a picture to the Jews. They should have been, this has happened before in our past, where people took their garments out and laid them before Jehu when he was proclaimed king. It should have been a reminder to them, this is a king. Another picture that they should have realized were the very words they were saying. David. He was the beloved king of Israel. His sons were kings. And so when they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David, that was a way to identify Jesus as royalty, as a king. In fact, the phrase son of David was meant to be a messianic title. So as Jesus allowed them to sing praises, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, he was identifying himself not only as a king, but also as their Messiah, as the anointed of the Lord. A third picture really is the entire scene. The entire picture as a whole should have reminded the people of another king. Back in the opening chapter of 1 Kings, when David was slowly fading, he was bedridden, 
we read of how his son, Adonijah, he made a power play upon the throne. To deprive Adonijah of the throne, David had Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada assist him in establishing Solomon as the rightful heir to the throne. David told these men to take Solomon down to a spring east of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley, which is where the Mount of Olives is located. They were to anoint him as king there and place him on David's donkey and to blow the horns declaring him to be king first kings chapter 1 verse 33 tells us and so back in first kings we read of solomon the son of david riding upon a donkey from the east of jerusalem coming into the city being proclaimed as the king you see the very son of david that sat upon david's throne solomon pictures for us this very scene that we read about here in matthew the description of solomon's coronation as king it was a shadow of something that was going to take place over 900 years from then as jesus the son of david the messiah came in from the east of jerusalem entering the city upon a donkey it was all foreshadowed it was all Screaming out everywhere you look, you see pictures of Jesus proclaiming himself to be king, proclaiming to be the Messiah. From the riding on a donkey to the spreading of their garments to the shouts of praise as he entered into Jerusalem, all pointed to one thing. Jesus is the long-awaited king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. There was no mistaking his proclamation. Or was there? Let's read on. Verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. As Jesus finally made his way into Jerusalem, we're told the city was moved. The Greek word that's used here is the word seo, which means to shake or agitate. It's where we get our English word seismic from that we use in describing earthquakes. Now, the idea is that the whole city had been shaken like an earthquake. Now, I don't know about you. I I think it probably depends upon where you're from. But what happens when you feel an earthquake? Again, I think it kind of depends on where you're from. Those from California, okay, I'm from California uh, don't hold it against me, okay? I'm from California. Um, y- y- you know, you probably don't do a whole lot. It's like, okay, earthquake, <laughs> no big deal. I-, I know other people who didn't grow up in California. When the earth starts shaking, they really freak out. They're like, this is not normal. You know, give me a tornado in the Midwest, and I'm good, but don't be having the ground shake underneath me, right? Really, though, typically when you feel an earthquake, you stop everything you're doing, and you start assessing the situation, Okay? If it's a small one, you usually stop and you think, are, are we having an earthquake right now? You know, you're not really sure. You're kind of f- trying to figure it out. If it's a little bit bigger, you start to think, Sh- should I get under the table? Should I get under the chair? Get in the doorway? What, what is the proper thing to do here? Uh, then you got those really big ones that wake you up in the middle of the night, you know, uh, make you run up and down the halls trying to grab the kids, get them to safety, you know, they didn't get woke up. You, they wait, you wake them up when you're yelling uh, and, and screaming for them as you run through the hallways trying to get them, you know, under the bed or wherever you're supposed to get them, right? Seriously, though, the, the description of what it was like when Jesus entered Jerusalem was the city was moved. 
And I imagine people, they all stopped what they were doing. They started looking around trying to assess the situation. And when people noticed that everything revolved around this guy coming into the city, down upon this donkey, they started asking, who is this? Everything Jesus did that day as he entered the city cried out, this is the king. This is your king. This is your Messiah. And yet some people just didn't get it. Some were still left wondering, who is this? The multitude answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. How the ears of the Lord must have cringed when he heard those words. Were the multitudes correct in their identification of Jesus Christ? Yes, his name was Jesus. Yes, he grew up in Nazareth and ministered in Galilee. Yes, he was a prophet. None of the information they gave was incorrect. It was just sorely incomplete. Jesus was so much more than a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. I don't know if we have any sports fans here this morning. But it would be like saying Michael Jordan was a baseball player that played in Chicago. This would be a true statement, as Michael Jordan played for the minor league Chicago White Sox team. But he also played basketball in Chicago. He is arguably one of the best players to ever play the game of basketball. To say that he was a baseball player in Chicago, well, it really doesn't begin to tell the whole story. Or or perhaps it'd be like saying Ronald Reagan was an actor who lived in Hollywood. This, too, would be an accurate statement. But Ronald Reagan would also go on to govern the whole state of California, later led the entire United States of America as president. His presidency is still looked upon favorably by many Americans today. And to, to, to say that he was an actor, well, it would be accurate But again, it would fail to tell anywhere close to the whole story. Jesus was so much more than a prophet. Jesus was the promised king of the Jews, the son of David, the son of God, and even more so, he's the king of kings, Lord of lords. To say that he was just a prophet was not acceptable. You know, last week, Pastor Nick spoke of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. When Jesus spoke with the woman, she had perceived that Jesus was a prophet. But Jesus had said to her that if she had really known who it was that she was speaking to, then she would have asked for living water. Later, the woman brought up that she knew the Messiah was coming. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Jesus was not satisfied with her perception of him as a prophet. He wanted her to know him as more. On another occasion, Jesus healed a man that was blind since birth. The man was questioned later by the religious authorities, and he identified Jesus as a prophet. But later on, Jesus approached that very man and identified himself as the Son of God. And he asked the man to believe in him. Jesus wanted to let this blind man know that he was more than just a prophet, that he was the Son of God. Jesus 
even asked his disciples what others said about him. And they told him, some say John the Baptist, who was a prophet, (laughs) some Elijah, another prophet, and others Jeremiah, prophet again, or they just said, or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? You guys know what happened, right? Peter, he opened his mouth and he declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's not that the title of prophet was bad. Being a prophet of God was a very honorable thing, but Jesus is so much more than a prophet. You know, the question, who is this? in regards to Jesus, is the most important question one can ponder and answer. Who is Jesus in your life today? Is he a good moral teacher? Is he a prophet? Some say he was a lunatic. Some like to say he's just a made-up person that people use as a crutch for life. Or... Is he king of kings and lord of lords? If your answer is not, he's lord and savior of my life, you are in a very dangerous place this morning. To be wrong about this question, it has eternal consequences. For a day will come, a day that you don't know when. It could be today, it could be next week, next year, several years from now. But a day will come when your life on this earth will be complete. And you will have to stand before your maker and you will have to give an account of your life. And the only thing that will truly matter is how you answered this question of who is Jesus. If he wasn't your king, if he wasn't the Lord and Savior of your life, then you will have to pay the penalty for all the sins you've ever committed in life. And you will spend an eternity in a place that was set up and established for the devil and his demons, a place called hell. If you are here this morning, you have not made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I hope that you would reconsider your evaluation of who Jesus is when it comes to his place in your life. Eternity is at stake. If On the other hand, your answer this morning to that question is, he's my king, he's my Lord and my Savior, then I want to lovingly encourage you all to truly let him rule and reign in your life. Too many professing believers have an incomplete Christ. They believe in a Jesus Christ that is Savior, but they don't believe in a Jesus Christ who is Lord. Many want Jesus the Savior, but far fewer are willing to surrender their heart and life to him as Lord. And this kind of Jesus, he's treated as nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. This isn't the Jesus of the Bible. In fact, this is a make-believe Jesus. He is an idol of our own making. A Jesus who is only Savior of your life but not Lord is is an idol. A made-up God that doesn't match the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. They have to go together. 
If all Jesus is to you is Savior and he is not Lord, then you have an incomplete Jesus. He needs to be Lord of our life. And I want to encourage you to let him sit upon the throne of your heart and to trust in his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness, to trust in his leading and his guiding and his provision for your life. Let him rule and reign in your hearts and in your lives. Let him take that rightful place in your life as Lord, as Savior, and as King overall. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this portion of Scripture that just prepares our heart for this week to come. Lord, you said, my time has not come, my time has not come, my time has not come. And then on that triumphal entry, that Palm Sunday, you declared for all to see, for all to know, my time is now. And you declared yourself to be king over all. You declared yourself to be the son of David, the promised Messiah, the son of God. And Lord, I pray that that is the place that you have in our hearts and our lives today. Lord, that you rule and reign from the throne of our hearts and on our lives, Lord. And Lord, I do pray, Lord, if there is anybody here this morning that has not surrendered to you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they submit to you, that they confess their need for you, and that you would do a great work in their heart and in their life, that you would bring a work of salvation upon them. Lord, if there's any here, I pray that today would be a day they make that proclamation of faith in you. Lord, you see and you know all the hearts that are here this morning. I pray that you do a work in us. Lord, for those who have surrendered and submitted our lives to you, Lord, I pray that you would just, that we live our lives accordingly. You wouldn't just be the Savior that, that gets us, you know, uh, out from underneath the penalty of our sins. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for that work. Thank you for that victory. But, Lord, we would continue on, allowing you to rule and reign, to be Lord. We would be yielded to you, submitted to you in all of our ways. We love you. We thank you that you are our Lord, that you are King of kings, and there is none like you. We give you all praise, honor, and glory for you alone are worthy of it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.